Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 10th, we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3-17. to 17. In today's text, St. Paul speaks about the outcome of a painful letter he had written and gives thanks for the ministry of the Word that spreads the fragrance of Christ into the world. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be back. As we get started today, Pastor, let's talk context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been writing up to this point leading up to our section? Now, you've probably mentioned it already, but there's lots of scholarly opinions on how many letters to the Corinthians there really are. Uh, and we're definitely going to see some of that today when Paul's going to reference previous letters that he sent. And then the question is, okay, in this case, it's going to be, is there enough pain in the first letter to the Corinthians uh, in order to have that one qualify? I, I kind of think there might be, actually, and and who knows what small letters have gone through. It's never been a difficulty for us as Christians um, to have the possibility that the apostles wrote other things, uh, that there were other letters that we missed, that you know, even potentially we discover one someday and, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, we hold the scriptures because they, they show themselves uh, to be the word of God. They even reference each other, right? Like uh, Peter referencing Paul and saying his writings are the scriptures able to be twisted, I suppose, by uh, false teachers uh, like they do the rest of the scriptures, he says. Um, and the, the truth is the purpose and the, the value of these uh, memoirs of the apostles, as they've sometimes been called, these epistles, is to deliver the things that are necessary to salvation, uh, not necessarily to fill in all of the really interesting details that we would like. Look at the Gospels. I mean, we don't know tons uh, about Jesus and his childhood. I'm very curious about that. Uh, and John ends his letter that way, right? The, there aren't enough books in the world to contain all the things that we could have written about Jesus and what he did and what he said. But these things are written that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you'll have life in his name. So this is definitely a case where we are not going to be able to tease out all of the back and forth of the politics and the fighting and the troubles and the, frankly, actions of God's word in the Corinthian congregation. That'll be all right, though. Uh, there'll be more than enough here for us to see uh, uh, how Paul is dealing with strife in the congregation, and particularly strife to the point of uh, what we would call an excommunication, uh, a serious censure of a, of a member of the congregation that was out of line, that was impenitent, uh, that had to be handed over to Satan, uh, kicked out, um, dealt with so severely to try and wake him up uh, to repentance. And the good news is, uh, while the evidence is sometimes spotty, it, it seems to be clear that there was actually a reconciliation. That's what Paul's going to get to urge today. So we come in, we miss some of the details of the the painful part, but we have enough details of the happy part. And you know that's probably the rather way we've had it 
we would rather have it that way anyway. Sure. So just to kind of put this out there before we take a look at this text, because it did come up briefly in our previous conversation on the last text, would you understand what we're going to read today about this matter of, of someone who needs to be forgiven and needs to hear that forgiveness? Would you take that back to the person that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, the one who was committing sexual immorality? I mean, I think that's a strong contender. I, I, um, I'm not familiar maybe with the arguments for why that, why he doesn't meet uh, the level of uh, uh, criteria for that, but certainly that person seems to be in Paul's sights in the first one uh, as a special example, one that had to be dealt with in this very extreme and, and last resort way, uh, but part and parcel of a whole congregational mess that needs to be dealt with. Um, so I suppose there's plenty of room for there to be others too. Uh, but I, I don't know. Is there something I'm missing that, uh, no, that's, that's the one that I've always understood this to be referring to. And that's what I'd been taught that this was referring to. I, and I don't, I don't know all the, the other opinions that are out there, but I, I've understood that there were some out there. I, I tend to think of this being at least mostly about the situation that was mentioned in first Corinthians five while having application to probably other situations that are going on in Corinth. Yeah, it's a question of whether, I mean, there seems to be, I've heard there's evidence for a letter before 1 Corinthians as well, and, you know, uh, again, Paul is not writing these letters saying, I'm making a uh, uh, three-volume book of Corinthians that's going to be the Holy Scriptures, and that's why, um, but we know he's writing with apostolic authority. Right. Well, and, and what you said about scriptures being written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and through believing have life in his name, then even if there is someone else who he has in mind here, and I would say additionally to that one man, just the fact that we do have these two letters preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures, we are right to connect those two situations, even if Paul had other things in mind additionally. The Scriptures would would bring that testimony to that, to that for us through the work of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, and so we, I think we should connect them, even if Paul has more context that we're unaware of. What we are aware of from the Scriptures, I think, makes that a correct use of God's Word in this case. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, um, I mean, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. We're going to be talking about calling someone who sinned against you uh, to repentance and then seeking to have forgiveness, seeking to overcome painful things with the only thing that can be true joy, which is actually resolving that problem, and that happens through the forgiveness of sins. That much is so clear in this text today, um, and it sounds, I mean, so eerily similar to the way Jesus speaks about this in Matthew, uh, yeah, Matthew 18, for example. Um, so this is not foreign to us uh, by looking at the other sections of Scripture either, even if we don't have all the details of this particular case and how it played out. All right, so with that introduction, let's take a look at the text. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, 
that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That is our text for today. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. So, Pastor Denzer, our, our text picks up, there's, a, you know, maybe a bit of a break between verse 2 and 3, but certainly we're in that same context where Paul's talked about his affliction in Asia and now certain travel plans that he had, wanted to come see the Corinthians, but he didn't because of pain that he was going to cause by his physical presence, and that really continues into our section. Kick us off into those first couple of verses that we read today. Yeah, um, I think verse 2, even though it's not part of our consideration, is interesting. It, it sounds like just one of those rhetorical phrases that doesn't quite communicate across uh, languages and generations, where he says, like, I'm the, I caused you pain, or if that's the case, uh, who else could make me glad but you, the one whom I pained? Um, maybe that doesn't, that logic doesn't seem to follow in the way I would think of it. But, but, uh, what it's getting at is Paul needs to continue to work for reconciliation with them. We are very quick to look for opportunities to kind of cut our losses, I think, or, um, we have a whole language surrounding toxic individuals, toxic relationships, uh, which lead us to say, you know, there's a certain point and you should be watching for it. And in fact, maybe it's, our real problem is we never see it, but we go past it, uh, where you really just need to expunge this person and forget about it and get the heck out and don't keep trying, right? Paul definitely is not saying that. I mean, he's recognized even that he's part of the problem, uh, that he is not innocent of this. Obviously, if he's writing these painful letters and if First Corinthians is any indication, He's not the only problem, and his letters and his letter writing are not the only problem, uh, and yet he's not giving up on it. So that's his point, is is he is, I think, rhetorically trying to say, I'm not giving up on you, uh, and uh, the way to resolve this is really to see that this situation and you, this congregation, and me, uh, this preacher of the gospel, that we are reconciled to one another, that where all of this pain has been here for so long, gladness may come in. Uh, and wash that pain away, uh, genuine gladness, rather than just kind of saying, well, let's try and forget about that and uh, maybe just forget about each other too. That'll make it easier. Hmm. And the the role of, of love, I think, within the matter of reconciliation, as it's being talked about here, is a connection back to 1 Corinthians, where... Mm, yeah. So often Paul was telling them, look, you're you're worried about you're puffing yourself up, you're building yourself up in pride and boasting, but but you need love. And I think you you see Paul putting that into practice here in this letter. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he says, uh, uh, you know, I wrote uh what I did, so I might not actually have pain. 
and and maybe I wrote the way I did so that I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Here, though, he kind of plays with the word, and now he's shifting, I think, into not exactly saying that what he did was wrong, uh, uh, but maybe trying to clarify why he was the way he was. Uh, you, you get the impression Paul wrote too harshly, maybe, that that's at the heart of it. But he's still trying to say, the reason I wrote harshly uh, had some good behind it. The harshness oh. probably could have fallen away, but the concern is real. And the concern is some kind of sin. Uh, that's serious. So it's out of love that he inflicted this pain, if there was pain inflicted. Uh, and he wants to show that, uh, and he's going to explain this love. And that's why his love doesn't end with, I inflicted the pain and now I walk away. I mean, honestly, if somebody hates you, they don't stick around after they land the blow, right? They just right. walk off and you know drop the mic and stuff, and that's it. Paul yeah. hangs around because it obviously was not his intention to just spurn this congregation or any individual in it, but but it was to to treat them as somebody who's intimately connected with them, right? He's he said elsewhere his dealings with people are like fathers, right, uh, or like midwives birthing, giving birth to somebody in Christ Jesus. Uh, so. Paul's going to have that same kind of intimate, ongoing connection with them through the pain, uh, seeking gladness, right? So what is the pain that he's afraid of suffering when he finally gets to them? I don't think it's the pain of they're mad at him or the pain of they're seeking revenge against Paul because he was a jerk to us or whatever it is, but it's the pain of seeing them actually have fallen away. Actually, that Paul didn't say anything. Paul didn't risk further pain because uh, he just didn't want to engage in any kind of conflict. Uh, and as a result, they wandered off. Rather, Paul's saying, I got to stick with my argument, my warnings against you, uh, my warning is against the troublers of your congregation, because I, your consciences, your faith, your continuing in the faith is at stake. And the thing that would pain me most is if you fall away in some way. Mm. Yeah, you, you mentioned the the way that Paul speaks about himself as a father to some congregations, that was the language he used in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that they, they had many guides, but only only Paul was was their their father in, in Christ Jesus. And so that that intimate connection that he has with them, again, is is behind. And I think you can see how how that would be the case, that a, a father would feel that pain to watch his his child, his children fall away to suffer great harm. Not that they were mad at him. But to see the the results of their sins, that's the pain that that Paul is is being caused here as a pastor to the congregation, and that's I mean that sort of pain I think is is something that certainly pastors will feel toward their congregations at times or members of their congregations. It's also pain that literal parents feel for literal children, those who you know they they gave their children the faith when they were young and the children have have walked away. I think this this matter of of pain that's caused sometimes by the parents' words to those children, and the pain the parents feel in seeing their children having left the church, that's a very real thing that people still experience today. Yeah, and parents speak about how, I mean, the pain of kind of sitting, watching this happening, maybe parents don't actually know as much as they think, uh, but they probably do know something, and, and there are many cases where parents have to sit somewhat on the sidelines. They watch these things happening. You know, they can they can almost proverbially see the bowl of uh, uh, you know uh, tomato soup spilling off in slow motion and it's <laughs> this train wreck is about to happen and they're not in a position where they can reach out anymore and stop it like you would for a little two-year-old uh, yeah. but notice they don't turn away right they don't disappear 
they they have to endure this pain, stick around, watch it happen, maybe even, uh, but not to deliver an I told you so, boom, get out of there, uh, but to, I mean, to do what they can to love and, and to persist through that. I, I don't want to ruin everything. We're coming to one of my favorite verses, which is our very last one, and where Paul, you know, says we're not peddlers of the word of God. Uh, often pastors have been told in the past to sell yourself um, you know, to make people like you, to, to build an intimate relationship with somebody, right? Um, and so maybe you, it's dangerous to say this kind of fatherly relationship ought to be there between a pastor and his congregation. I, I see a huge difference there between I'm going to build, you know, I'm going to sell myself, I'm going to make you like me, I'm going to like you, we're going to have this intimate, emotional relationship thing. But I mean, as as is commonly said, right? You find out who your real friends are when the chips are down, um, because they stick around, because they suffer with you, not just suffer because of you. Um, mm-hmm. And so, this is the kind of this is what I think the term father expresses in Paul's use, uh, and why it, all of this he's trying to argue is a demonstration of that commitment to them, uh, not to his kind of uh, using them. Or I think he says in another letter, maybe even this one, right? Uh, I'm not trying to use you as like a feather in my cap for others. In fact, it seems like that's what his opponents are doing. Right. Okay. So to make sure we do get to those those favorite verses of oh, yours yeah. and to, to, to keep working through the text then, in verse 5, he continues to talk about pain. And he, he, it sounds like he's talking about someone particularly, if anyone has caused pain. He says, he's not caused it to me, but in some measure, he's caused it to all of you. So talk about this What's what's going on? Who's feeling the pain and why here? Yeah, not to put it too severely, Paul says. So I think that's a hint that maybe he was just harsh in his words before. He's so ginger here, gingerly saying this, but also not backing down, right? The pain is the pain that is caused by the person who's caught in the sin or whatever's going on. Um, this is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. Uh, also, where Paul gives a list, uh, you know, don't fall into all these things. We often hear this in Lent. Uh, uh, don't be sexually immoral in all of this. And he says at the end, anyone who disregards this doesn't disregard man, man's word, but the word of God himself, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Uh, so all of this to say is, you're not hurting me, is similar to parents, right? Uh, this hurts uh, me more than hurts you. Actually, Paul's not using that argument. He's saying, your the, the the strife here is not because you rejected my res, my advice or because uh, you said harsh words to me or that it came to the fact that I maybe lost my temper and wrote more harshly than I needed to. The pain is not that you might reject my sayings because it would hurt my person. The pain is that you would continue to have this undealt with problem in you, in the midst of you which is on the road to shipwrecking your faith, which is on the road to destroying the congregation. Um, and if, if it is, as we assume, maybe that guy from 1 Corinthians 5 who had been in gross and open uh, manifest sin and, and was acting as this, if this was no problem, this is destructive to the Christian congregation because it shows everybody else that we can continue in sin and expect grace to abound all the more. Uh, that God's warnings against sin are not serious, and that my neighbor may as well go ahead and participate in that kind of sin too, since, you know, apparently that's fine for Christians. You know, Bob's doing it. Uh, That's the kind of thing that ends up uh, being stumbling blocks for our fellow Christians on a 
much more obvious scale because these are actual sins against God rather than free matters. But it's similar to his arguments on distinction of foods and, you know, the concern that even something that is in and of itself free might cause my neighbor to think, well, I can be a sinner like him and and then cause them to violate their conscience. That's of such concern that we might even curtail our freedoms for the sake of our brother. There's no way that we can permit this kind of, you know, active destruction of our brother by by what's going on and allowing this to happen as if it were not unchristian behavior. Hmm. I mean, so that does fit into the context of what he says in First Corinthians 5 when he speaks about a little leaven leavening the whole lump. So the, the pain that's being caused here is not causing pain to Paul in the sense that you've, you've hurt his feelings because he, you didn't listen to him, but rather causing pain to Paul because he sees how this destructive behavior, this sin, is going to spread throughout the whole congregation, potentially, and end up destroying them, and that's the pain, the leaven, that's coming on all of them. So this one pain is is spreading. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, in verse 6, then, he, he says to such a one, this one that's causing pain, punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should turn rather to comfort, to forgive and comfort him. Talk to us about the, the next move Paul makes here. So for me, this is the gap uh, that's much more concerning, or I would like to know a little more of those details, because it right. seems as if we move straight from there's a huge problem, and if it is in fact a gross manifest impenitent sin, we move straight to the forgiveness, and we know this is not how biblically it ought to go. Uh, so I think there's there's room here to maybe assume something is missing and that something must be repentance, that in fact, the guy has heard it uh, and and been moved by it. Uh, it is in this letter, correct me if I'm wrong, where he speaks about, um, uh, you know, the painful things being said, uh, producing godly grief, correct? Yeah, that's coming up. I think it's in chapter 7, I think, is okay, the, I'll try the godly spo- grief. I'll try not to spoil it, but I mean, I, my understanding of this has always been uh, he's talking again about his painful language and how, what is the good that came from it? Well, it's the pain of preaching the law of God, which we all know this, right? Sometimes somebody comes and corrects, and the first instinct is to say, who are you to tell me? You know, it hurts to be shown that you're wrong. It hurts to be caught in a sin. Um, there's certainly pain there. Um, but uh, wisdom, and certainly somebody who hears that person out, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is that pain con- caused by the person who noticed? Or is that pain caused by me, the violator, right? That's what the law of God comes and shows is, you're the man. The problem is not Nathan noticing. The problem is what you did. Um, And and this is where I think Christianity has the unique, there's something more than this. It's not, now depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, but it is to the one who recognizes this, you know, um, have mercy on me, right? Uh, I have sinned against the Lord. but the Lord has put away the sin. That's forgiveness. So the the thing that's maybe missing again, at least as as Paul doesn't write about it here, would be the the way that Jesus speaks, say in Matthew chapter eighteen, about the brother who's who's caught up in a sin, and you go to him for the sake of winning your brother, and that happens through repentance. So the repentance isn't mentioned here, but it certainly seems like that that's what's what's happened in the meantime, even though Paul doesn't specifically write it. Just just thinking about the way that that there is the pain that comes through the preaching of the law, how then the Lord takes that and and makes use of it 
so that a person is, is ready to hear the gospel and believe it, just to try to connect a little bit to what we talked about in the previous text, although it's a different sort of affliction and pain that's mentioned there, back in chapter 1, Paul talked about the affliction that he had experienced in Asia, this sentence of death that they had felt so that they despaired of life, but he said through that, God caused them to rely more on him as the one who raises the dead. Mm-hmm. And so again, although it's a different sort of pain that's happening in the preaching of the law, if if we don't feel that pain of the preaching of the law that leads to contrition and repentance, then there's we're not going to be in that spot where where the Lord's going to raise us from the dead with the gospel. So in that sense he he t- makes use of this pain that comes from the preaching of the law put us in that spot where the only option is for him to raise us from the dead, and that's what he's standing there to do with the gospel. Correct. Uh, and maybe what's, you know, all of this is kind of bottled up or laying behind that word punishment, which is especially difficult for us in our time to understand what this means. Um, but I think the the fo- what follows it is much more clear, is Paul is concerned that the punishment is going to continue and become excessive and lead to this guy to have excessive sorrow. Uh, and I think this is quite clear to us. So um, it, for me, Luke 24 is so instructive on this. Uh, the, the message of the gospel is, you know, the whole scriptures testify to it. Uh, it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, die, and to rise again, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. The movement of that word ace into for, sometimes it's just and, uh, is, but notice the order, repentance, and then Here's where we come to the end. This is actually the end of the train stop. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is the goal of all preaching of the law. This is the goal of all repentance, is that uh, we would reach repentance, as Peter says, um, which is to finally reach the forgiveness of sins. And it's not something we're reaching by our running uh, or our stretching out, but it's it's what the Lord brings us to by his word. Convicts us of sin, ushers in the gospel, and, and absolves us. Uh, so, uh, repentance is where we're trying to get to, uh, and the forgiveness of sins. And that's the problem with continuing to pile on. So uh, who knows what punishment means here? Maybe it was that he was cast out. Maybe it's just simply what we had said before, hand him over to Satan, uh, 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 you know, let him be excommunicated, for lack of a better term. But the goal is to absolve this person, to have this person be reconciled to himself, to God, to the church, to Paul. And then what? And then the duty changes. Uh, uh, Then the duty is, and if I can jump ahead, I think this is what it means about we don't want Satan with his designs to outwit us. There's a way in which Satan outwits us when he lets us turn a blind eye to sin, which seems to have been their problem. There's also a way, though, he outwits each of us when he gets us trapped in sins. Everybody knows how he, he loves the first part, you know, oh, sin's no big deal, go right ahead. And and so we do. Then immediately, almost, we feel ashamed and like a loser and like it's all over. And Satan comes and nurtures that idea. You're right, man, you really, you really blew it. You really offended God. I mean, how could he possibly forgive someone like you? And then to have the aid of, of all of the social pressures that are in some ways valuable, but in other ways very destructive. Uh, it, it, this is also a way Satan outwits us. You know, he, he, he nurtures in us, you know, the righteous judgment of our neighbor. Man, he is a sinner, and I'm never going to let him forget it. You know, man, he really did screw this up, and I'm, and I'm going to make him suffer for it for the rest of his life. 
uh, almost like we should take over the position of God. That would certainly be something Satan has experienced in attempting. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, what's so- the alternative? What the alternative, though, is to shower the person in the forgiveness of sins and to remind not only them but each of us what the case is. The case is this person has been absolved. The case is Jesus has shed his blood for this person. Uh, and this person has repented, and thanks be to God, uh, you know, like the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, uh, put them on the shoulders, get the party going. Uh, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and is absolved uh, than over nine nine uh, sinners who go around thinking everything's just fine. It becomes the duty of the whole congregation, I would say, to remind this person and one another how it stands before the Lord and them. This This one's absolved. If you want to remember what he did, it's it's most important that you remember it's absolved. Yeah, yeah. God, God be praised when that that joy of the repentant sinner is brought into the entire congregation. Just as the angels in heaven rejoice, so we rejoice here on earth. We're going to look at that joy and more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO, We're talking to Pastor Sean Denzer this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 10th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3-17 to 17 with Pastor Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, you were talking about the way that after the, the punishment, the, the call to repentance has gone forth, that when the repentance is there, there's great joy in the forgiveness of sins and lavishing that on the repentant one. And as a part of your conversation earlier, we you mentioned the word excommunication, and although perhaps that's not exactly what's what's in view here, it certainly seem it would seem to be a, a place where we think about our life in the Church as a way this text might apply. Now, excommunication might seem like a, a dirty word, like like we're we're leaving the conversation that, that you were talking, you know, we're just turning away, as you, you were talking about that that imagery earlier, but excommunication is not actually that. So talk a little bit about excommunication and restoration in the life of the Church. Sure. I, I mean, the uh, way it begins is, beloved in the Lord, if you, quoting from John 20, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We forget that second half sometimes. So, and and Pastor Denzer, just to clarify, what you're what you're reading from right now is actually the the agenda for the Lutheran Service Book, correct? 
Yeah, I pray you never hear these words, but this is the right for excommunication from the Holy Christian Church, which is, I mean, that's a that's a staggering sentence right there. Yeah. Um, and the pastor now makes known to you that uh, this person, by continued impenitence, so notice it's not just we heard that this guy uh, sinned a sin, and uh, so that's it. You know, uh, but no, this is continued impenitence uh, has despised their baptism. That's astounding, right? So it has really kind of rejected the name that they've been brought into. Uh, they were under church discipline. Uh, I mean, everybody's under discipline, I suppose, because uh, we're disciples of Christ Jesus. Uh, but th- what does this mean? It really describes it. Although repeatedly admonished from the Word of God, showing them their sin, showing them that what they did is a sin that the Scriptures speak about, showing them why this is a problem, showing them why this can't continue, uh, doing it for what sake? For the sake of forgiving it. I mean, for reaching them, having them get past the pain of these words to the the point of these words. Nevertheless, they've refused to repent. So following the direction of the Lord in Matthew, I and members of this congregation pleaded with them repeatedly to receive Christ's forgiveness, but to no avail. Finally, they refused to hear the church also, right? So it, maybe that connection is not clear to the person who's being excommunicated yet, but it but it, but it that's by their stubbornness i mean that you cannot refuse to repent and still assume that you're forgiven um the whole point is to be rid of these sins this is the problem with you know turning around and jumping back into them after they've been absolved like i thought these were a problem i thought that's why it was good news to hear that they can be absolved and taken away but you don't want them taken away you want to jump back in them that's a problem right uh in any case i mean to show the seriousness and impenitence as a last effort to win them back to our Lord. Now they're excommunicated, uh, excluded from the all of the rights and privileges of the church, especially the Lord's Supper, except to hear the preaching of God's word, because that's not going to give up until finally, uh, well, the last part is a prayer. May God mercifully grant them grace to confess their sin and receive the Lord's forgiveness and be restored to communion. That's the goal. Um, so, Notice, lots of pain, uh, but pain that has a purpose. And the purpose is not to inflict more pain, not further punishment, not to never let them forget, but it is actually to overcome it in the only way that is really possible, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you know, the admitting that there is a sin and it's mine. And the the words are like from Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin. I actually wanted to talk about the restoration even more so. Good. Just the fact that the text is, First of all, I think this is the most important thing to see. There is a public right of restoration to the Holy Christian Church. Um, I think you're supposed to have the uh, excommunicated person there with you when you excommunicate them, although good luck, (laughs) unless you're bringing the guards in, I suppose. Uh, But, man, it would be amazing if you could have the restored person there, too. And it it begins with that Luke passage, right? Uh, The joy, rejoice with me, I found the lost sheep. Let's have a whole party. Uh, joy in heaven more over one sinner who repents. And the pastor reminds everyone that this person's been under excommunication, all of this, but to announce with joy that uh, it's removed because they've repented, uh, they've received the forgiveness. I mean, so it's the duty of the pastor, in, in essence, to announce to the whole congregation, I, everybody has to know this, this person is forgiven. And uh, while the prayers go on for more joy, I think it would be totally fine if the pastor also were to add, maybe this is for the sermon or for other teaching, but I mean, it's our duty now as a congregation 
to remind ourselves and this person that their sins are forgiven. Um, so the theme for our upcoming Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, which will be July 9 to 12 uh, in 2024 in Seward, Nebraska, at the college there, uh, the theme is uh, Songs of Deliverance, the Psalms and the Great Congregation. But it's drawn from Psalm 32, which is one of the penitential psalms. It's the psalm that talks about the blessedness of the one to whom iniquity is not imputed, the one who confesses and is forgiven. It talks about how miserable it is to pretend that you're not a sinner, to try and get away with not confessing your sins. When I was silent, I mean, my bones groaned and burned away within me. I couldn't fool anybody. Uh, You know, then it ends with very familiar verses, you know, uh, uh, then I spoke to the Lord, right, and he heard me. I uh, acknowledge my sin. Um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting it now. Gosh, help me. I'm looking it up right now. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions. Confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity iniquity of my sin. I know. We say it all the time. Well, why is that joyful, right? Because the silence has been put away, and the Lord says, I've got something to add myself. It's not just that you should tell the truth, but here's the truth. Your sins are forgiven, and blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. It goes on then to say uh, a little later, that um, you are for me a hiding place, Lord. So not a one time, uh, we dealt with that. I'll see you later. I hope I never have to see you again. He's my hiding, he's my refuge. And uh, he surrounds me with songs and shouts of deliverance. I mean, certainly this is true in the sense that he surrounds us with the rest of the Christians and, and we're always talking about his victory over death and sin. But how about this for an understanding that he surrounds me with the whole group of forgiven sinners who can surround me with the shouts of my own deliverance all the time, right? That every hymn, every canticle now, every prayer we pray, every time the pastor gets up and says, your sins are forgiven to the whole congregation, this is like, now you have to take this personally. How about that? Now you have to realize we're we're saying this so that so-and-so who was lost, is who is now found again, can apply this to themselves and know that they uh, are forgiven. And, and we're never going to let them forget it. We're going to take it up in our songs. Uh, thankfully, we'll leave the names out, but it's imperative that w- this person remembers that their name belongs there. Hmm. And so in, in that way, then, the congregation strengthens each other so that they are not outwitted by Satan, so that he's not able to work his wiles among the, the individual members of the congregation, but rather by being surrounded by these songs of deliverance, uh, yeah, we strengthen. He hates. Oh, he hates that. When sinners are forgiving each other, that's right. That's right. So, and and as I've I, and he hates it when we sing it too. I think especially, don't you think? Oh yeah, I uh, totally. Yeah, that's right. So, Pastor Denzer, since you you mentioned it, when or you you mentioned the the worship institute, July 9th through twelfth, twenty twenty four, Seward, Nebraska, at Concordia University. There, uh, if you want to find out more information about that, oh, you go. very easy. lcmsorg worship institute. Uh, no spaces. It'll be very easy to find. And registration should open right at the beginning of 2024. Very good. Very good. That sounds like a, a wonderful resource. So that again, together, we would strengthen each other in the Christian faith and not be outwitted by Satan. As Paul continues then in verse 12, he mentioned some of his travels. He talks about going to, to Troas to preach the gospel, but he was not at rest because he didn't find Titus there. It seems we know from later in this epistle that Titus had been to Corinth, and I think it sounds like Paul was maybe expecting a a report from Titus and not finding him there gave him him some trouble, and so his his travel plans continued. Any details there in verses twelve and thirteen before we 
move on to your favorite part of the text? Yeah, I don't think so. And he wants to move on to the triumphal procession of the Thanksgiving right. too. Uh, okay. But uh, I mean, you get the impression it's another way of saying this has been weighing on me. I didn't send this, fire this uh, letter off and, uh, you know, hit tweet and then uh, ignore it or something. Uh, That's right. Paul is, again, a father. He's suffering along with him. That's right. Okay, so Pastor Denter, we've got a whole 14 minutes here to talk about the last section, the the fragrance, the triumphal procession. There's a number of images that we probably need to understand. Help us unpack this section. This was preached uh, by a dear friend uh, at my ordination, so it's hard for me to forget it. And uh, he didn't preach to me, he preached to our congregation uh, and talked about how wonderful it is, in Paul's mind, that we're led along in triumphal procession uh, and uh, through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread everywhere. Maybe we should say, first of all, like what kind of triumphal procession and what stink is he talking about, right? Um, uh, the smell, smell is not the sense that we expect to use in church as much as maybe we should. I, very few churches uh, in our circles make use of incense, although it certainly is possible to do that. And you have to think of that. That was the idea is not only are they going along with maybe a cross, like if we were to have a procession, we might have a, you know, a cross at the front of it. We do this on Palm Sunday some days. Uh, and you might have lots of people singing in the choir as they're walking along. Good. Uh, but, you know, you also want the sense of smell going. So maybe you got that incense going. Or I suppose another way is to think about the children of Israel. I mean, the smell there is not only incense, but the smell of the meat cooking and the sacrifices, right? So any priest is going to come out of the the temple precincts just reeking, I mean, probably deliciously, like some barbecue uh, pit master, right? Um, So this is the kind of fragrance of the priests of God, uh, all of the Christian church, that is, not just the pastors, walking along, maybe especially Paul and Titus and all his people, right? Uh, Notice these faithful preachers of God's word that are aimed in everything to be fathers, not just guides, and uh, trying to lead everyone through repentance, into the forgiveness of sins. Um, This is to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. We are, and I I think this we is one I wouldn't be afraid to include the congregation as well as Paul and his co-workers. We are the aroma of Christ uh, to God, at least among those who are being saved. Well, no, but also among those who are perishing. And so now, um, I mean, so this is an interesting image. We are a pungent smell. Maybe incense is the perfect example. Not everybody really likes it very much. Uh, So here we are. And to some people, it's pleasing, and to some people, it's not. Oh, what is it? Uh, Cilantro, right? Half the people. Yeah, uh, that's right. It's good. Half the people, it tastes like soap. Uh, So Paul is saying that's kind of how it is with Christ, although thankfully it's not so random as that, Uh, although maybe the, the why is not always known to us. But this is a reality that we face. And I really appreciate that sermon at my ordination because it, it isn't just true about pastors, although maybe especially true of them, uh, supremely so, as Paul writes. Uh, but man, it is true of every single member of our churches. It's it's true of every single Christian listener. You know that you have a smell on you that others are smelling, mm. and not everybody likes it. Mm. So with the the aroma then from you uh, to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life uh, I would imagine then the the fragrance from death to death that's how the the unbelievers those who are perishing would would smell Christians whereas it would be fellow Christians that would that would smell others from life to life 
Absolutely. If somebody says you smell like death, that's not a compliment, right? So uh, the people who reject this message say, this is death. Yeah, well, you stink. And Paul's saying, actually, it's the smell that you're going to have. You, you are the one who is perishing eternally. You're the one who is rejecting Christ and his words. And I really think that's the person who is not seeking forgiveness, right? I mean, you would just purge a person and get rid of them if you didn't like them. You would never stick around in that smell to try and save them, uh, to mix the metaphors a little bit. But yes, aroma of life to life, yielding life, bringing life to them. I mean, there is nothing more joyful than to hear a fellow Christian confess the truth. There's nothing more joyful to old people than to hear young rapscallions uh, uh, not actually destroy their church, but to come and confess the creed. That's joyful. Um, uh, uh, And just as joyful as it is tragic when people spit in the face of Christians or say or, or mock them or, or consider them low status. Um, so we should be prepared for this. And uh, I think that's true for all Christians. And, and now I think Paul probably is, does have in mind his him and his fellow apostles uh, because he says, man, who is sufficient for this? And then I think this next we is probably particularly Paul and his co-workers. But it probably has great fruit for all of us as Christians. So who's sufficient for this? What's the answer to that question? Do you know? No one. I think that's exactly what Paul's getting at. It doesn't even have to say it, right? Who is possibly sufficient to accomplish this of themselves? That that breeds great humility in the ministers of Christ and in his saints. So then we come to this, I mean, essential well, if state. I, if I can, just brief, not to spoil exactly. chapter 3 too much. But I think one of, and this is, I'm pretty sure, read during ordinations and installations still from the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, he talks about this matter of sufficiency again and says, we aren't sufficient of ourselves. God's the one who makes us sufficient. Yes, well said. Uh, I always forget that three follows two. That is one. I take it back. Maybe that's my favorite section of 2 Corinthians. Corinthians. You can can have more than one favorite. I mean, it is, is beautiful. This whole thing is absolutely focused on his ministry. He's going to talk about the ministry of the law and the gospel in the coming section. He's going to talk about the great pain and suffering that he and his fellow apostles are are facing. And it's not the pain of some people were mad at me when I preached to them in Corinth. It's the pain of people rejecting the gospel, the pain of those who are fighting against his teaching. Um, uh, so uh, I just mean to say that pastors aren't the only ones who endure this this. Uh, troublesome or, or just curious reality that some people hear this gospel and love it, and it seems like other people despise it, and it's not always so easy to figure out how. And in fact, I'm not sufficient to overcome that cross of the theologian, as we call it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to think about, you know, the whole congregation being the fragrance uh, either from death to death or life to life, uh, perhaps a, a good example, in at least in somewhat recent memory, is just the the day of Thanksgiving, uh, one of our elders here and I were, were talking about how Thanksgiving as a, a holiday within our culture at large seems to be skipped over. And, mm. and although it is a, not a, a officially a, a holiday on the church calendar, perhaps it is one that, that we in the church might do well to, to emphasize a little bit more so that we do give a testimony to where true thanksgiving happens and and in whom we truly do give thanks so that so that here's here's the point I'm trying to make with this text so that when someone drives by the church parking lot on the fourth Thursday in November and sees a bunch of cars there they either think what in the world are those people doing there why aren't they home cooking the turkey and watching football 
or they rejoice that there are other Christians giving thanks to the one to whom all thanks is due. That's that's the point I'm trying to get to. Absolutely. And have it be so clear that like people will accuse you of something and you'll say, thank you for the compliment, right? Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and, and there kind of is no middle ground on this. That That is painful if you want to kind of ease your way into solving the problem. I mean, I think that kind of sharpness is shown in the preaching of the law and the gospel we're about to get to and in the treatment Paul has shown with this person who's caught in sin, right? It is going to take nothing less than actually calling out that sin and recognizing it for what it is and maybe some painful words of law. But it is for the sake of something that is just as in the other direction, glorious and not an accomplishment of us at all, the forgiveness of sin. Yeah, no, so so who is sufficient for these things? No one. Paul will expound upon that more in chapter 3. And then in verse 17, the last verse of this chapter, he says, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. As you said, this certainly sounds like he's now speaking more specifically about apostles, those preaching the word of God, not the entire congregation now. Uh, what's he saying in this last verse of our text? Uh, and I think he probably has in mind some peddlers of the Word of God. Uh, people sure. are doing—he's distinguishing himself, and probably from the teachers that are hounding him in every congregation he goes to. But but I, I think every pastor and every congregation member who has a pastor then ought to take this to heart uh, as, as what the calling is and what the calling isn't. We are not selling this stuff. If we're selling this stuff, I mean, you can, bend, you can come up with a good justification for doing almost anything— as long as you meet the quota, um, uh, you can be deceitful in even the, the, the slightest, smallest ways. Um, or certainly, um, you're going to try and do something to make sure that my options aren't either they love to smell this or they despise it, right? Let's leave cilantro out too controversial. Uh, let's, let's just put something that almost everybody likes, a little bit of salt, and we'll make it in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not an option for a Christian preacher, and, and to a certain degree, it's not an option for every Christian confessor either. Yeah. Um, we are commissioned by God. Sincerity is the opposite of being a two-faced, duplicitous person. We'll hear about sincerity next week, uh, too, in the next uh, passage. Um, but notice the way he conducts his ministry in the sight of God, with God as his judge. I mean, he says this, I think, elsewhere when he says, uh, uh, it's a small thing to be judged by you. Paul doesn't mean I don't care what your opinion is. He means uh, what is most important is that I be found faithful by my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to speak in his sight. I'm going to speak his words. Uh, So I am going to be his servant, and I'm going to hold myself to his standards. And that's going to be what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can to be found faithful by my master. um, And that's going to be far more important than being pleasing to my people. Uh, and that's maybe hard to hear. It's hard for the pastor who maybe wants to be liked. It's hard for the congregation that just wants everything to be smooth and easy. Um, but this is so necessary. And the alternative, I, I think we ought to see, is wicked. It's deceitful. It's the kind of thing the devil is always trying to trick us up and, and act like. I mean, a person who is selling this. My generation, at least, is kind of known for not wanting to be sold things because we're sold things all the time. Um, and hopefully we still have that radar going, that, uh, uh, i say, a BS detector. Um, <laughs> we don't want people to be peddling stuff. We don't trust that. Um, so I think pastors ought to work all the harder to be truly authentic. And I think the way Paul lays it out here, the, the number one thing to being authentic is not talking about being authentic, but is putting yourself in the sight of God. 
uh, if God is, it's not an if, since he is my Lord, since he's my master, since he's standing over my shoulder watching, since he's giving me this charge, since he will judge me at the last day, was James say, right? Not many of you be, should become teachers. You're going to be judged more harshly. Uh, you know, since I have to give an account before him who is judge at the end of the living, uh, end of the world, the judge of the living and the dead, therefore I should take heed to myself and to the teaching, et cetera. Mm. Uh, with about two minutes here, Pastor Denzer, help us to wrap things up, not only in those wonderful verses there at the end, but this entire section of Second Corinthians chapter 2. Well, if I can connect it more clearly, even though Paul is certainly speaking to a congregation that he's not present at, obviously, uh, that maybe has their own preachers, maybe doesn't, uh, maybe they're waiting for him, I would, I would just like to assert and, and connect these two things, that the ministry of preachers is going to be a ministry of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that certainly is going to be spoken about in the next section, um, that it does often include painful words. Sometimes they have to be spoken as directly and as harshly as excommunication. But even so, in a sermon, it is often the case that people will come away saying, the pastor kind of was harping on us. Now, maybe he's overdoing it, like Paul warns about here. But everyone should entertain the fact that he is absolutely serious and he's right to be saying so. De definitely entertain that first and say, oh, he's really telling me that I need to repent or I need to examine my life. I need to consider this. Every Christian ought to do this. They ought to put themselves in the sight of God first before his law. But then the purpose of this, and this is how to tell, I think, if your pastor is not just a harper, uh, but is also a true preacher of God's word, he will be anxious to see that everybody who is exposed and rattled and pierced and, and brought out to scream because of the pain, hopefully it's not that bad, uh, that they are brought to be healed in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. I mean, it does no good to leave everybody dead on the side of the road or, or despise or or to come off with the impression that these aren't the baptized at all, um, but rather they would see and be reminded and, and surrounded with all the service as well, with this forgiveness of sins. Uh, and in this way, the devil is beaten back among us, all of us, pastors, congregation alike, uh, so that everybody is constantly doing this, so that the forgiveness of sins finally reigns. As, as Luther says in the Small and Large Catechism, right? This whole church is ordered so that nothing but the forgiveness of sins is like echoing and showered all over us constantly. This is that fragrance that Christians love to hear and love to smell, I should say. Uh, and, and this is the honest uh, commission of God, uh, which doesn't have to be sold. It is beautiful on its own. And uh, for those who are perishing and, and don't want to get to that, um, sadly, I'm not sure what else we can say, but we certainly can't sacrifice our birthright of the forgiveness of sins for some other uh, trick or method. Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and also chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. The word of the law that calls to repentance is difficult, painful to hear at times, but do not smell this as the fragrance of death, rather smell it as the fragrance of life. For the Lord who condemns through his law raises to life in the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is showered over you in Christ Jesus. This is the fragrance from life to life for you. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>